Astonishing Legends is actively seeking sponsors. If you'd like to get some exposure for your business or know someone who would, please contact us at astonishinglegends at gmail.com. This week's show has benefited greatly from the assistance of the newly formed Astonishing Legends Research Corps. We've assembled the finest volunteers from all over the world to help us compile information, and we now have access to more resources than ever before. And with Tess Feifel helping to coordinate it all, we've reached the next level in our research capabilities. Thank you to the Corps for all of your help these past couple of weeks. We are aware that there was a slight delay between our last show and this one, and that was for a variety of reasons, including personal illness and feisty computers and deep, deep research. But we want you to know that we are dedicated to the show and in pretty much a constant state of production. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. It reflects like an optical instrument and responds to changes in the weather so sensitively that it seems like a part of the sky rather than of the land. Author Ian Frazier on Lake Baikal from his book, Travels in Siberia. Come with us tonight to a lake in Siberia where alien encounters and other strange events have been happening for decades. So tonight's show is chock full of information. We covered all the facets on this one. There's going to be wild tales of the unexplained and also a ton of science. More science than I think we've ever done in an episode. Maybe more speculation and more uh, legends of unknown origin. But it's but that's what's great about this story. There is a scientific and ecological and geological, and, and it covers a lot of the sciences. Yes. Uh, and even into the unknown sciences. But it also dips heavily into the paranormal Yes. I mean, it goes way, way into the paranormal. Way down that rabbit hole. Yeah. So we're going to go tonight to a lake known as the Pearl of Siberia, Lake Baikal, where we're going to learn firstly about a strange encounter that took place 50 meters below the water and left three Russian military divers dead. Even though tonight's show is about Lake Baikal, the story actually starts 1,500 miles southwest of it at another exceptionally deep lake in Russia known as Lake Isaikul. Isaikul. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, our friend Kristaps, we recently yeah. became friends with a uh, podcaster in Latvia who's going to probably email me about <laughs> 50,000 words we've mispronounced on Yeah, this he's <laughs> trying to school us. He did an interview with us for his own podcast, uh, which is great. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And any, right. Yeah, anyway, it's uh, a very deep lake, but not the deepest which is Lake Baikal. Yes. The thing about Isakol is that it is a place for training. They, the Russian military trains their frogmen there. Uh, I guess they call them frogmen still in Russia, as opposed to <laughs> seals. <laughs> yeah. But, um, well, they're both different things, but they train similarly. Yes. And the Russians train, I'm sure, very similarly to us. Any deep lake in the United States, there is training. I was talking to Scott earlier today. Up where I'm from, we have uh, Lake Pondere and uh, Lake Coeur d'Alene. They're, they're pretty deep, and they're... Uh, there is U.S. Navy subtesting there. But, right, to which I asked, how do you get a submarine yeah. to a lake? And you said... You build it there. You don't carry it there. You're building a multi-million dollar 
Well, I'm sure it comes in parts, but there, I don't, I've never seen one being trucked down the highway, if that's yeah, your question. Yeah, no, I don't, or, it's amazing. Yeah, you build it just to test it in the lake. helicopters. It's crazy. Well, of course, no, you need, you, that's what I'm saying, is that you need a controlled environment. The ocean is deep, yes, but it's, it's pretty wild out there. So a lake is a, is a calm, controlled place, relatively speaking, where you can do that, you can get to depths of that kind of pressure. So the lakes we're talking about here, though, very, very deep. And we're going to be referencing an article written by a gentleman named Paul Stonehill, who we actually actually talked to uh, via email several times as we were putting this show together. I invited him to be interviewed, but he was busy at the moment and maybe getting back to us later this year to talk about some other things. He, he, his trade is really writing about Russian ufology, and he, yeah. he himself was born in Kiev and immigrated to the United States. Right. And has been publishing a lot of books. He's been on Coast to Coast. He's he's kind of all over the place. With really this stuff. fascinating stuff. If you're into that thing with a bent towards Russia, which has a tremendous, tremendous amount of paranormal activity of all kinds, but especially UFO activity and USO. Tell us what uh, USO stands for, Scott. Uh, USO stands for Unidentified Submerged Objects. Well, there you go. The article that Mr. Stonehill wrote. We're citing it from a website called Pravda.ru, which was formed by journalists who left the famous, now 100-plus-year-old Communist Party-owned newspaper Pravda after a schism in the early 90s. On May 15th of 2008, Mr. Stonehill wrote an article for Pravda entitled—ru, I want to make it clear, it's not the government paper—entitled, Mysterious Giants Inhabit Eurasian Lakes. In this article, Stonehill makes reference to a prior article from 1992 published in the Russian paranormal phenomena magazine Anomalaya. That would be issue number four, 1992, which we have attempted to find and not had a whole lot of luck with. By the way, yeah. researching Russian material from the <laughs> 80s, not easy. Yeah. It's not exactly – Not as online as American stuff or, yeah. or Western European stuff. So it's out there. But what we've tried to do here is find the things that have been cited the most that seem to be commonly accepted by credible people in this field. Yes. Serious reporters, serious researchers – and professors, so and, and yeah. multiple sources whenever we can get to them. Now, right. this particular article in Anomalia was written by a man named Mark Steinberg, and it's actually spelled S H T E Y N B U R G, just to make it clear. He was a Soviet veteran of the Afghan War, and he is now an author residing in the U.S. Apparently, now I, I attempted to find him, mm -hmm. but his last name, the spelling, has probably just changed to Steinberg, and. I couldn't find a publisher or any way to get to him, so it was it's it was unusual to not be able to track him down. But he is a published author, and his right. material is out there. He is not an imaginary person. Yeah. Not sure where he is right this minute. But <laughs> well, maybe Paul Stonehill does. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah exactly. I and, and then who is the other author that you contacted? Uh, Philip Mantle. That's right. Yes, and he's a, he's a British citizen. Yes, and he co-wrote this book with Stonehill about Russian UFOs, and then Mantle also has a new book coming out about sightings in Poland that's really fascinating. He hmm. actually sent us an advanced copy, which I need to send oh, to you. Oh, very cool. And maybe you're going to be talking to us about that later this year. Okay. Anyway, Lake Isikol, if I'm saying it wrong, forgive me, <laughs> is about 1,500 miles southwest of Baikal. So uh, Russia's very big. It's a big place. It's, uh, well, <laughs> what's the, uh, the the one train uh, trip there, the Trans-Siberian The Trans-Siberian, yes. It and crosses seven time zones, yeah, right? Yes, yeah. and I wanna, I'm going to talk about that again in a minute. I was actually supposed to take a trip uh, to Baikal on that train and when I was in college, and it didn't work out. But I want to get back to this. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, Steinberg and Lieutenant Colonel Gennady Zverev. I think Gennady. Gennady Zverev 
are training these guys, these frogmen, in this lake in Issacol when they have a surprise visit from a high-ranking commander of the Military Diver Service of the Engineer Forces of the Ministry of Defense for the USSR. Well, that is a mouthful and, uh, and a very long acronym. I'm sure. Yeah, let's see if I can say his name. The man who showed up, his name was Major General V. Demenyanko. And we've seen that spelled a couple different ways uh, with, with just Demyanko and Demenyanko. Yeah. So we're just going to say it however. Demenyanko shows up while they're training these frogmen. And I guess he's shown up in a little bit of a panic. He's, he's concerned about them. And he proceeds to tell them that there was another team training in Lake Baikal. And this is sometime prior to 1982. We've never seen the exact year, but it's earlier than 1982. And these frogmen were on a training dive in the lake. And while they were down at a depth of 50 meters, or 164 feet apparently, they encountered these incredibly fast, agile, humanoid swimmers in silver suits with sphere-like helmets over their head. Think Mars Attacks, I guess. Um, And no tanks, no scuba tanks or gear of any kind other than the helmets over their heads. And here's the thing. These beings were swimming all around them. And they were three meters tall, as described by him, which is almost 10 feet. That's 9.84 feet. That's correct. Once they realized that they were seeing this, a local commander decided he wanted to catch one of these silver swimmers. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So they could send seven guys under the command of an officer down into the water to do this. And I I can't really figure this out for sure, but I think that's six guys in the commander because I know that the CO... Yeah, he's the commanding um, officer, so he's he's you know leading the team. Yes, and uh, I guess you you need more than one person to effectively operate a net underwater. Well, yeah, that's yeah. the thing. They, they I don't know who came up with this plan, but if it wasn't Fred from Scooby Doo, but they decided <laughs> to go down yeah. there yeah. with a net to right. catch this thing that is clearly a superior swimmer and right. larger than them and more powerful than them. So they go down with this net. Well, I, I think, to, just to be clear here, yeah. I'm not sure they knew what it was. It, yeah. it, it probably could have been to them, like, it's impossible that this thing is humanoid. Right. Maybe more like a giant fish of some kind. That's why I think the reasoning is because it, it sounds a little crazy. It's, still well, a, it's all crazy, but yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. All right. So anyway, they're down there. They try to catch it. And as they're in the process of trying to get it to go into the net, they get forced from that full depth of 164 feet to the surface of the lake in a rapid, rapid way by an unknown compelling force, for lack of a better <laughs> – we'll yep, get back to yep. Dyatlov Pass, but uh, which I'm saying wrong. I know Kristaps here. Dyatlov Pass. <laughs> um, but they get forced up out of the water. In fact, they go – they come up all the way out of the water as high as 50 feet according to some witnesses. That was one report, 30 to 50 feet in the air, which that alone smacking back down on the, the surface of the water will mess you up. Yeah, it's but, a, five, yeah. a three- to five-story building. Right. But but any – as you can imagine, if anybody knows anything you know about diving out there, coming up that rapidly without stopping at certain points to decompress, very dangerous. Yes, and we're going to talk about that. Also, I want to read this eyewitness account that was written by Mikhail Dimendenko. He is a well-known Russian writer, and he read Steinberg's account in 1992. I'm quoting this here. And recalled that while on an assignment from the Union of Writers in 1986 in Irkutsk, which is the city on on Baikal, on, on the river, up the river on, on Baikal. It's the lar- I think it's the largest big city before you get to it. So it's kind of the gateway to Baikal, right. the, the, last, the jumping off point. Right. And yeah. so he spent some time there, and there he learned from local fishermen that some years before, 
they observed how Soviet frogmen were propelled out from the lake 10 to 15 meters up over the water. The locals never found out why the military behaved in that manner. So th- there's people that apparently witnessed this yeah. event. And we they, still... They witnessed the guy shooting out of the water. Yeah, just so you can do... There's going to be a lot of metric uh, conversions here. So yeah, we'll do what, I, a, what a me- we can for you. Yeah, a meter you can keep in your mind is 3.28 feet. So the divers get ejected out of the water. Of course, the bins ensue. And the bins is another thing when, in fact, the, the diving instructors get mad when we call it the bins. It's actually DCS or decompression sickness. Right. That's, that is a, uh, that's a nickname for it. So they come out of the water... And they're in bad shape because they've shot up out out of the water. I'm going to explain how this works. But when when you dive, and a lot of people are already going to know this, there's people out there that dive. I'm sure. I don't dive. I haven't dove. But not by not on purpose. Anyway. Not, yeah, not on purpose. I did dive into a <laughs> yeah. lake once uh, well, at a party trying yeah. to get everybody to give me ten dollars. Not <laughs> not my brightest. Moment. No, but you uh, and I like to mention this. He was dumped out of a canoe because uh, the water was so high. He clipped the bridge and. Sp- Spent the night in uh, soaking wet underwear. Well, it, it down flooded, <laughs> kind of like Sorry. the boat in, um, yeah. in the perfect storm. They down flooded. They think they down flooded. Right. But the, the point is here that, that this Thanks is for a, bringing that up. It's two embarrassing <laughs> you, moments you can, in less than 120 you, seconds. That can be cut by someone. Later. No, we're going to leave it in. All right, no, then. We'll leave there it in go. when you embarrass yourself. We might as well. <laughs> okay. We're, anyway, you, so let's get back to the night. No, the point is, is that, that that's a very deep depth for just regular diving in general. Yes. And you can't dive with just oxygen. Oxygen becomes poisonous to you. You can get um, oxygen toxicity if, you, if you're at that depth on pure oxygen, so they mix it with nitrogen. Now, what happens is, is when, when you dive, as you descend, the water pressure around you causes your body to absorb the nitrogen from your tank. Now, the nitrogen doesn't hurt you outright, but it does go into your tissues. The deeper you go, the more nitrogen your body absorbs. When you come up, if you come up slowly, the nitrogen stays in small little teeny tiny bubbles that move from your tissues to your bloodstream, and ultimately into your lungs where you simply exhale them. But if you come up quickly, the reduction in pressure encourages the nitrogen bubbles to become much larger, and they get trapped either in the tissues or in the bloodstream, never making it to your lungs to be exhaled. And one of the best analogies for thinking about how this works is think about when you shake up a can of soda, like a Coke or something, or a bottle, and you open it really quickly as opposed to slowly. That's what's happening yeah. inside your body when you're suffering from this. And it obviously does not feel good. You know? No, it's incredibly painful. Yes. It's a very painful way to go. It, cre- and I have to give credit. There was some guy on uh, named Doug on Yahoo Answers that <laughs> explained that, made that explanation, which I, of course, paraphrased just enough to kill you if you don't take proper driving lessons before going diving yourself. I accept no responsibility. (laughs) But anyway, so these guys get forced to the surface rapidly. Now, the best way to mitigate the bends for them is to to put them into – at, at this point, I mean, they should have done decompression stops and come up very slowly. You stop along the way. Right. You'd let things adjust every few minutes, and you and you come up slowly. But they didn't do that. They're already not only at the surface; they were ejected out yeah. into the air and then fell back into the water. So, well, sometimes there's reasons for that. You're running out of air. You come up a little too fast. There are tables and charts that will tell you at what point you should stop underwater. Yes, and take a break. The decompression stops, I think they call them, or, or yes. rest stops to prevent this. But sometimes it can. Ha- it doesn't. Have happen very often nowadays. But as a precaution, though, there, there's a way to cure that. And basically, they just recompress you. 
Yes. And then and then kind of reverse the action there. Yeah, and if, yeah. but you have to get to it very, very quickly. Yes. And we had a, um, a lot of information regarding the data for this from one of our members of our research corps. Her name is Marissa Schley. And I just wanted to thank you, Marissa. She's actually a diving instructor, which is really cool. So I was able to ask her a lot of questions about this. But she had mentioned that she was surprised anyone survived after coming up from that far. And because this is what happened. They needed to get them into hyperbaric chambers or decompression chambers. Now, this is the Russian military. And they were not necessarily fully prepared. I'm not casting aspersions. I don't right. want Putin's going to give me some tea <laughs> with, uh, yeah. what is it, plutonium in it or whatever, uh, in my Guinness. <clears throat> I have to look this right. up. Litvinenko. It's all right. No, I know. no. Um, God, it's going to bug me. Let it bug you. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, he poisoned that guy. So yeah. just, Putin, if you're listening, I'm, I'm not casting aspersions. But I am going to say that they weren't fully prepared. They had – apparently well, there, was, there were chambers available, yeah. but only one of them worked. Well, and, the, yeah, and what, we, what we'd read was uh, at least two chambers – uh, decompression chambers. The problem is they only fit two people at yeah, a time. They only fit two at a time and only one of them worked. So, And they had seven people who had, had been forced out of the water. So they took four of them and jammed them into one of the chambers yeah. and the other three died on the beach. And, yeah, one, one, and one of them being the CO. Right. And so I, I don't know who drew the short straw. I don't know how they made that decision, by the uh, way. And Marissa had asked me the same thing. Yeah. It's like, how do you decide... Who's going to get... I think it's whoever gets to the, the edge of the shore first and, uh, you know, probably the officer, you know... Sacrificed himself? Yeah, maybe, you know, he'll get the Order of Lenin for that. Yes, you'll get the... Yes, <laughs> so, quoting that. No, but... It, October, but, nice. Yeah, very good. You get the old... Uh, Tim Curry. Yeah, very good. But uh, but the problem is that, yeah, so now I'm not sure the four guys did all that well because it's not meant for four guys. No. So they're not getting the full treatment there. What I'd read is they ended up as invalids. Yes. Major tissue damage. Yeah. Uh, br- a little bit of brain damage as well, I believe. Right. Yeah. So they're messed up, but they lived. Yes. Yeah. So Major Dimonyanko was apparently sharing this story with the diving team at Issyk Cole out of concern that if they encountered anything similar, like these silver swimmers, they needed to take it way more seriously than the prior team did it by call, what with their Scooby-Doo net. And, <laughs> yeah. we- <laughs> right. so- and, and they, they, they take the helmet off, and it's the motel owner trying to scare the kids away. Right, right. Oh, there is a hotel there on the edge of the lake. There is. It's, it, and yeah. isn't it called? It's got some amazing name, the, the Legend of Lake Baikal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was also found by one of our, uh, our team members there. Yes, and did you look at the, did you look at the pictures? It's it's spectacular. You have, you have to picture this thing. It's it's out in the middle, kind of a, of nowhere. It's a rift lake. We're going to get to the specs on it uh, in a bit here. But there's indigenous people that live around there, so it's not totally uninhabitable. But it's not easy to get to. It's in Siberia, in the southern kind of central uh, part, to it kind of a little bit to the east. But there are people that go on vacation there because it, it's gorgeous. It's very beautiful massive. It's quite a spectacular thing to see and go visit. It's just not a day trip. Yeah, that was actually Miranda Ehrenberg who found that hotel. That's right. And yeah. I, I went to the website, and we've got the link here in our show notes. you got to check it out because I love the rooms because they have the rooms. Yeah. They have rooms that have different categories, and one of the funnier – excuse me. It's it's amusing to me as an American. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean I'm not being condescending about right. it, but just like a room for a gentleman, room <laughs> for a woman, and they oh, just yeah. get fancier and fancier. Oh, but it, nice. it looks it looks pretty amazing. Yeah. So – in the Pravda.ru article, Stonehill also makes reference to a Russian paranormal researcher named Grabovsky, who interviewed a man who supposedly was reluctant to even talk about this, but apparently in the late 1930s, he and his friends had found three humanoid skeletons in a cave at Isakol. Now, the skeletons were over three meters or nearly 10 feet in length and were described as having decorations made of silver on them that resembled bats. 
supposedly, and yet another example of zero respect for the dead, or an archaeological site, which we've encountered multiple times on the show, the men took the silver and melted it down for the money, with the exception of one small piece that was studied, but its age could not be determined. I couldn't find any pictures of this, by the way. I would love to see that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty early. Yeah. So, yeah, the 30s in Russia, now it's like impossible. And keep in mind, folks, I'm going to give you a little hint here. This height or length of three meters is going to keep coming up. Over and over again. Pay attention. Yes. I mean, can can you, by the way, can you imagine how much human history has been lost to short-sighted greed or zealot? I mean, (laughs) it's like, it's it's staggering to think of all the things we're never going to know because of Tomb Raider, smugglers, thieves. Well, that's why I have a problem with uh, Lara Croft. I mean, mean, it's a fun game. She's lovely. But (laughs) but in in the movie, I think that when it starts off, she's she's trying to escape from the bad guys. They have her cornered in that little water cave. And she, uh, she, Indiana Jones, like rocks these giant ancient pillars, to, so they topple over them and, and crash on the boats, yeah. and gets away. It's like, well, you just destroyed a five thousand year old artifact. But yeah, we're glad you got away. Yeah, so but as long as you yeah. got away, yeah, right? <laughs> no, it's but you're right. It's it's if you've listened to our Oak Island series, you'll know what we're talking about. Maybe there's nothing down there, but now we'll never have a clear shot at it because. It's been made a mess of, yeah. as we've said in the, in the podcast. But yeah, so anyway, yes, it's, it's infuriating, but you have to go with what's left, and, and this is it. So, so to recap, <laughs> I just want to recap yeah. this real bit. Two guys are training divers at a deep lake in Russia in 1982. During the training, a high-ranking colonel shows up and says, be warned, we were doing this shiz at Baikal, 1,500 miles northeast of here, and our guys encountered 10-foot-long silver humanoid superfish aliens that swam all around them super fast. So we decided to try and catch one with a Scooby-Doo net and when we did that something unknown forced all of our divers to the surface and out of the water so fast they got the bins and we could only save four of them by shoving them into one of our two working decompression chambers and the other three died right that's what happened that is to sum okay. it up that's yes that is the report yeah. now you've known about Baikal for quite a while now. So what, and, and how did that come about? Well, you know, it's funny. I didn't know about the weird stuff that was going on there, but way back when I was in college, I had a friend that I used to play chess with a lot, actually. I still play chess with him online. We've been playing off and on for 20 plus years oh, now. Oh, God, yes. And he always mentions that, but it just, it I do, I do mention no, it. No, no, because it's an, it is an incredible I'm, streak. I'm like a broken record, but you're right. <laughs> no, no, it's, it, that's a long time to be playing a game with anybody. Well, it's not, not, not the one same game. game. <laughs> it's not the same game. Yeah. We get, no, we no. get three years to move. Right. You've known him. He, <laughs> okay, right. You've known him a long time. I've known, we've, yeah, we've played hundreds, uh, hundreds of games, and and he's way better than I am. He actually he beats me probably. I probably win one in five times. Wow. Well, but, he's uh, now he's not Russian, but his dad worked for the uh, he American Embassy the Ameri- in Moscow. Yes, right? the American Embassy in Moscow. And when when I was in college, he and I had talked about going to Russia, and he mentioned by call to me, and that was the first time I heard about it. And we were going to go over there and try to ride the Trans Siberian Railway, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah, the longest railroad line. In the world, at well over twice the horizontal width of the United States. Right. Um, pretty amazing. And it goes right by by call. Yeah. And I was really excited about this, but it, it just never materialized. I don't remember why. I think it was just too hard to organize. I didn't have a passport. and <laughs> Yeah, you'll need one of those. Yeah. And I, I was sort of, I think, at that time, I was really a rube about international travel at that age. Oh, yeah. And we, you know, Americans, we don't get out much. I should have uh, made it happen. Yeah. I, I, I'm filled with regret about not making it Well, happen. it it isn't, like I said, it's, it's an amazing place, and it's not really easy to get to. You have to, I think if you're going to fly in, you first have to go to Irkutsk. Yeah. Uh, if you're not, I don't know if you can jump 
off the train at some point and go see it. Yeah, I'm not sure. I didn't look into yeah. that, but I, I know it, it comes in close proximity yeah. to the lake. So but, let, well, we're going to talk about the the, the 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 specs on the lake here because it really is. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around. It is the oldest, biggest, and deepest lake in the world, and it has recently been declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Now, I just read this today, actually. Some people are arguing that the Caspian Sea is larger, but there's a debate over what, like Pluto, there's a yeah. debate over the, whether the Caspian Sea is a sea or a lake, because it has salty water in it. Right. But no matter what, Baikal is actually larger by volume. Yes. No matter what you call the Caspian Sea. Yeah, I love this factoid for our Americans here. It contains more water volume than all of the Great Lakes put together. Yeah. So think about that. It's a lot of water. Yeah. And it's it's 25, I think it's 25 to 30 million years old. Yeah. Like we said, oldest lake on the planet. It's a mile deep at its deepest point with four additional miles of sediment below that. I've always been thinking about that since we first uh, talked about doing this uh, a while, uh, kind of a while here. And we, we've had this in the story folder for quite a while. But the four miles of sediment. deep of just muck. Dead yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> no, think about 25 million years of animals and plant life yeah. dying. It falls to the bottom. It decays. It's like a giant compost heap. That's four miles deep. Yeah, and that's important. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that because it makes a difference. But anyway, that's about, yeah, for, and then for our European folks, uh, seven kilometers. Yeah. That's a long walk yeah. to, get, to get to the surface of just where the sediment starts to the, to the bottom of the rift. 12,248 square miles of surface, roughly the size of Belgium, as long as Florida, and it has over 20% of the total unfrozen freshwater on the planet. Unfrozen. I love the word unfrozen. I always well, remember yeah. unfro uh, unfrozen caveman lawyer. <laughs> Phil Hartman, God <laughs> rest his soul. Well, he doesn't know how this works. He's just a simple lawyer. Yeah, I'm but, just uh, a I'm just yeah. a caveman. Anyway, you know, you have to think about the the volume of 20% as, you know, compared to everything else. Also the other freshwater, most of it is in the polar ice caps, yes. glaciers, uh, great well, lakes. that's the frozen. We're only talking that's about what I'm unfrozen. Saying. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It's yeah, just yeah. it's uh, for stuff that's not frozen. It's it's a significant amount, and it's unusually clear. That's one of the the characteristics of the lake is that the water is unusually clear, and there's a very high oxygen content. Yes, which will, up near the surface anyway. Yes, uh, but but it's but it allows for a wide ranging and varied and exclusive amount of flora and fauna that yes. is only found there. Thousands of species found nowhere else. It's like the Galapagos. They've been isolated, and, and we're going to talk more about that, but the, the one of the things that's fascinating about it, for example, is it's home to the only true species of freshwater seal in the world, which is pretty cool, and they're very cute. But these seals, yeah. uh, they call them nerpa, and these seals, they don't know how they got there. there. There are other freshwater seals, but those freshwater seals are connected to saltwater varieties that have that they've migrated from nearby areas. Yeah. This lake is so far from any ocean, like 1,500 miles, they're not figuring out how these <laughs> yeah. seals got there. They don't know. It's kind of a mystery. Right. Well, I, and you, you know, think about it. They're not going to be walking on their little flippers there. Migratory that, seals. Yeah, for that far. But, and a little aside here, not to get off the track, but... I love big lakes like that. I grew up near one. But it reminded me of the theory, because you mentioned, like, well, how did they get in there? Well, there are theories. And I, like again, I did read a little blurb here that there's possibly tunnels, one or more, connecting Lake Baikal to the Sea of Okhotsk to the east. Those reminded me of theories that Loch Ness may be connected 
uh, by rifts under the water or tunnels to the sea as well. And, uh, you know, that's one theory that ha- that's how Nessie got in there. Oh, so it's kind of like how the thing gets into the trash compactor on the Death Star. It comes in through a door. Is it? Is that- well, yeah, remember? <laughs> Something opened up and it went away. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, that's the thing. <laughs> no, but, but uh, as animals look for food, maybe it's coming in from the sea. Uh, yeah. There's a rock slide. Who knows? But, but a prehistoric animal gets trapped in there and is able to adapt. Yeah. Not the same one, but of course, but maybe a pair or a small colony. Anyway, you're, ta- you're talking about seals getting in there. It just reminded me of like, I mean, that's a long ways, though. That is uh, from the sea to... It's 1,500 miles. Yeah. To the closest saltwater body, anyway. Anyway, so it's unknown. But the point is, is that this place really is a jewel of uh, of Siberia in that it's a unique place. And you know what's fascinating about the NERPA is they have two liters of extra blood, which allows them to hold their breath for 70 minutes, 7-0, over an hour. They can be under the water. And they can dive all the way down to 400 meters, which is about 1,300 feet. And I guess they live to be 50, 50 years old or something. But there's, there's about 60,000 of them. And, but mortality has been increasing lately. And we're going to talk about that in a minute when we talk about sort of what's going on at the lake nowadays. Yeah, 50 years is a long time, though, for, a, uh, for any mammal. You know, yeah. Good, good uh, slot of time there for a human in the Middle Ages. But, uh, but no, that's amazing that they, that they can uh, dive down that far. Anyway, it's a, it's a magical place. It's got its own, because we're leading, we're building to something here. Yeah. You find Slowly creatures <laughs> that are found nowhere else. So who knows what's down there? It's so vast. That's my other theory is that who knows what's at the bottom of the oceans? I yeah. Mean, just, you know. and, and so, and to your point about access points under the water, the fascinating thing about Baikal is that it actually was formed by a tectonic rift. So it's like the plates of the earth are called tectonic plates for, I'm sure a lot of you already know this, but for those of you that don't, and the continents and the seafloors in a lot of cases ride along on these plates. And it's like the Ring of Fire in the Pacific. It's where the friction is with all the volcanoes from the where the plates come together. I believe I'm correct on that. I'm I'm speculating a little bit. I should probably fact check it. But well, the, it's, the, it's, yeah, it's a characteristic, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a mountainous. Right. I, I believe near us, the Salton Sea is considered yes. a rift lake. So it's just uh, where there's tectonic movement generally moving apart. But in this case, it has a characteristic that's common in that there is a, there's ridges. Yes. That are kind of around the lake. Uh, to, it's uh, like to a tear side. in the earth. Really. Yeah, but and that's going to, and it's filled right. with this water. That's how you get the water, though, that, that's so deep. But it's uh, another one you may have heard of. Uh, they, they believe maybe Lake Vostok. Yeah. Putin received a, a vial of water from. It's, uh, it's a trap lake with several miles, maybe just maybe 20 miles, I don't know, something crazy. Yeah. Uh, of ice, prehistoric ice. So untouched water for millions of years. But this is the, uh, the, the. Did he drink it? Probably drink. No, he asked the guy though. I just read, I just read an article where he asked the guy, "Did he drink it?" And he's like, "No, no, <laughs> no because uh, I must go ride my bear." Well, you know, it's gonna have, <laughs> it's gonna be a Prometheus thing. It's like, hey, want to want to have a sip of this? Oh, and then yeah. you turn into a half beast creature, right? Uh, which would be a great movie. But the the point is that it's probably uh, water that was melted from the uh, the coring samples, not the actual water. But sure. uh, but these are special lakes. That's what he's saying. That's why they're so deep and really kind of uh, special. They're also extremely volatile. In fact, the mountain ranges around Baikal, one of them moves up and down nearly three centimeters per year. And the area gets over 2,000 earthquakes annually. In fact, just a few weeks ago at the beginning of February, there was a 4.4. In addition to that, the shores of the lake are moving apart at five millimeters per year. Scientists currently estimate in 650 million years, it's going to split the continent in half. 
of course, we'll be gone. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but some of the earthquakes have been so big, they simply don't compare to earthquakes around the world. In 1862, one hit the lake that was so huge, some have estimated it was a 10.0 on the Richter scale. Now, they didn't have the ability to record it back then. Mm. But that quake sank 77 square miles of land, creating Proval or Proval Bay on the lake. 1,300 people lost their homes. They bailed. When they came outside, the streets were bleeding water. They got their wow. stuff. They got in boats. And the whole thing went under, and now it's a bay. And it's under five or six meters of water at this point. So, and the lake, you mentioned it like a rift lake. It's also called a graben lake, G-R-A-B-E-N, or graben, graben, I think it yeah. is. Release the graben. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. 25 million years ago, this puts us in the uh, Oligocene epic. Epoch. Epoch? Yeah. Let's say <laughs> so far in the oh, weeds yeah, here. Oh, yeah, epic. With all, no, epoch. I really screwed that yeah. up. D- You're right. Go epoch. with it. You don't want to own it because, you know what, I noticed, I've said this I'm going to own it. You're right. So many folks, we, we get so many emails that we've mispronounced Stuff something. Stuff we've screwed up. And, uh, you know, it's it's all personal. Mm-hmm. I, you know what, I don't get mad at uh, Steely Dan for saying Oregon. Yeah. And, um well, they got to make the song it. work. But what? No, the point is that we're we're trying our best, and so these are these are difficult names. But there you go. Okay, sorry to screw you up. Yeah, that's yeah. right. No, you didn't screw me okay. up. I screwed it up. All right. Know. The point is that dinosaurs had been gone for over fifty million years when Baikal was thought to have started merging, and that's an important point to me because it rules out the idea of a Nessie type creature being in there. And that plays into the whole thing. And when we come back to speculating what it was those divers saw, I just wanted to make it clear the dinosaurs were long gone. It has uh, 360 rivers and streams that flow into it and one that flows out of it. Scientists say that water molecules that are in it tend to be in the lake for over 300 years. Yeah. 45 islands, the largest of which, Olkon Island. not sure I'm saying that right, but Olkon. Thank you. Island, which is about nine times the size of Manhattan but with only 1,500 full-time residents. Yeah. And we already mentioned the species and the NERPA, and the, which is the, the freshwater seal. There's also indigenous peoples that live there. Yes. Uh, because we're, you know, if you look, we'll have this on the map, of course, you can look this up, but we're just north of Mongolia. So ethnically, they're, they're I think, similar related to uh, the Mongol tribes, but the Buryat, Buryat, I think, that's, uh, I think that's close. I'm going with that. Those are the tribes that reside on the eastern side of Lake Baikal. And they, they rear goats and camels and cattle and sheep. They make a good living there. And to them, though, it's a very spiritual place. Yes. We're going to get into that a little bit, but very, even to them, for, for centuries, for thousands of years, very mystical, very sacred. Yes. Uh, some places that only shaman can go. There's also the Evenki people there yeah. who are reindeer herders. And oh, yeah. They're animists. And uh, I had to look this up, animism. Yeah. They just believe in the spirituality of, of all living things. Right. They live in the area. So there's a lot of different types of people around there. It's a very old area. And in fact, there's a, there's a beach there. One particular beach has 550-year-old cedar trees on it. And the, the wind and erosion has washed the sand away from underneath them. And they look like they're walking on stilts. It's been, oh, and I cool. saw some pictures of them. Yeah. I, don't, I, I might get them posted with this show. It's very Lord of the Rings looking. It's it, ah. <laughs> <laughs> well. When did when did Europeans get there? Russian. Uh, well, your, your it's Europeans. it's believed the Russians discovered it in 1643. Ah, quick little aside. Uh, again, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the uh, the dating is right or if this. Uh, but fun little thing, just to kind of we're leading into how mysterious this place is. I'm not sure if this is the same group, but apparently there's a story that when they approached an island a wall of flame came up or a column of fire came up and they were like, you know what? Let's, uh, let's turn back. 
Yeah. <laughs> but we're going to get to the, some of the, uh, of the water. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get to some of the. That was uh, all Con process. Island. Wasn't yes. It? Yeah. Uh, some of the processes that might be occurring here. But in any case, the first Europeans got a taste of just how mystical this place is. Before we wrap up the background on the lake, we do want to briefly talk about it. There, there are some things happening. It is, it is under assault right now. Yes, by natural and man-made forces. Yeah, it had over 36 separate wildfires raging as of September of last year, burning more than three times the amount of land burned by wildfires in California. So it's, it's, when we have a NASA image of that. It's pretty crazy to see from space. Apparently, corruption in the Forest Service and the government there have been blamed for letting them get out of control. They, they could have stopped them early on, but I guess they, they didn't. And now the, the water, which I don't know if we mentioned this, it has been exceptionally clear. You're supposed to be able to see down to a depth of as much as I think 120, 130 feet mm. from the surface. And even the ice, too, is clear. You can look down all the way to the bottom. But 30% of the lake's water is apparently no longer drinkable. Now, this is water that was famously some of the cleanest water on Earth. But there's now an algae problem in there, including Spirogyra. It's the 70s band. Yeah, the (laughs) 70s band, Spirogyra. I don't know if anybody remembers them from Britain. Untreated or insufficiently treated sewage and chemicals are being poured into the lake, and that's what has caused the algae to go kind of crazy. And the ships that are on the lake create 25,000 tons of liquid waste annually, but only 6% of that gets properly treated. Right. And then, then there's also a, uh, there was an old, uh, a real old paper mill yes. that's, uh, that, that's been there for quite a while. I, I think probably, you know, the case is that the thing is, the lake is so huge. You, it's, it's, and they don't care. Look, they're just making paper and making money off of it. But you're not really concerned with like how polluted it's getting because you probably don't notice for a long time. Yeah. Uh, but it has been. I mean, they, they, it's yeah, that mill was sulfurous. there for almost 50 years before it got closed in it, not too recent past. But the, the bad thing about it closing was, I guess, 2,000 people lost their jobs. It was like 80% of one of the little towns. Yeah, like, there ain't a whole lot of jobs around there. Yeah. So I, all kinds of stuff has been proposed to deal with the pollution problems there, but none of it's really taken hold. There seems to be corruption. And the government doesn't seem as interested in taking care of it as they should be, even though, like I said, it's now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So anyway, we're going to tie – I'm going to come back to all of this stuff. The assault, I think, is important when we start speculating on some of the crazier things that have gone on there. Let's get on to this diving story and what it was that they saw. Some people say it was the NERPA. It was the SEALs. There's a problem with that, though. Mm. The SEALs – only get to be about three feet long. Uh, the adult males, I think, can get three to four feet, and the and the females get four feet. Yeah, they are not. They are not three meters. They're not, <laughs> not nine point eight feet. Not even holding do, flippers. Yeah, no. Yeah, and they do not wear tiny little helmets. And they're not. <laughs> they're not silvery. No. Yeah. So they have like a darkish, gray, dark gray, yeah, a dark yeah. gray coat. The bottom line is, I don't think it's likely that what they saw were these seals that are a third the length of what they were, or, you know, fifty percent of the length of what they what the divers reported. Yeah. Right. Wearing a Jetson space helmet. Yeah. Wearing a yeah exactly like you know Mars attacks helmet. Yeah. Other people have talked about sturgeon. When sturgeon it can get to be a pretty huge fish, like the beluga sturgeon, which oh I yeah. Think it's, known for its caviar, which is now illegal. Yeah. But they, they, they can be, the beluga can be up to 15 feet long. Right. One has been seen that was 20 feet long and weighed 7,000 pounds, but they don't live in Baikal. There, no. are, there is a Baikal sturgeon that's color varies from light brown to dark brown. It's not yeah. silver at all. 
It doesn't wear a tiny helmet. <laughs> no, that's a big. That's another big factor. If you're, if, and that's the thing here, we are taking the elements of the report yes. as they are, as they've been widely cited here by several people that we've come across here. So that's the elements that we're going to go to because they're important. No scuba gear, not humanoid-like, silvery type of tight-fitting. Pantsuits. <laughs> well, they, it's funny. They, they've been described as coveralls in the in, in the Russian translation uh, of the websites here. But right. what we're getting at, not natural, that it was enough that these guys clearly saw them as really tall. Uh, Humanoid. Human, yes, humanoid-like yes. creatures. And, these, and the sturgeon, by the way, like I said, light brown, dark brown. The males become mature about age 15 to 16 years. The males grow to three feet long. The females can live 18 to 20 years and grow to four feet long with a maximum weight of 30 pounds. Right. They're, they're big, ugly fish. The other, th- the other thing I've heard... Oh, that's... The other thing I've heard... Feelings. They're not going to know. Uh, <laughs> and then they have the barbells, like catfish on them. Right? Yeah, that's they, right. Yeah, In the front, they have yeah. these things that hang down. Yeah, barbells. But... but uh, Is that what they're called? I be, uh, they are on catfish. I know that. Oh, okay. Uh, but what we have here, though, is is a fish that they are very curious. There was reports that uh, again divers up in uh, like the Spokane River and Lake Coeur d'Alene. I believe there are some in there, not real common. Uh, but one guy was working at a dock and he turned around and this thing was <laughs> like right up next to him, and, and it looks like a sea monster. Yeah. It's you know so I can see that if you saw this underwater at a, at a great depth, it might be kind of shocking. But you would not describe it as they have described what they saw, these silvery swimmers. It would also not be capable of ejecting you from the lake. No, no. Not uh, 50 would, feet in the air. Yeah, you'd have to do the uh, the SeaWorld trick where you're standing on the uh, the, the nose on of the, the nose. Uh, orca. Oh, yeah, I guess you yeah. could do it if it was like that. But that's a choreographed thing. Yeah. This was a some kind of force that blew them all out of the water when they seemed threatening. The other thing that we talked about with Marissa, who is the diving instructor— was whether or not nitrogen narcosis could have caused the divers to hallucinate, the Russian right. divers. The now, martini effect, they call it. Yes, and that's when the nitrogen makes you sort of drunk. Well, any compressed gas, uh, the noble gases, can't believe I remembered that, but yeah. they uh, they all have a... Helium, neon, argon. Wow, yeah. Xenon? Xenon. Maybe. Yeah, I'm sure we're forgetting um, some. We're forgetting some. But the point is that they all, under compression, have a kind of a narcotic and anesthetic effect. In fact, xenon is so effective in producing an anesthetic effect that you can use it for surgery. It's just very expensive. So people don't, they kind of stick with the drugs they have. Right. But yeah, so when it's under pressure, that's just one of the side effects of these compressed gases on your system. But you know what? It's it's some tingling. It's numbness. You lose some motor function, but you don't... I don't think hallucinations... There's no hallucinations. Yeah, it's really what part Marissa of said. There exactly. are not hallucinations. It's more of a drunkenness. And the reason we mention that is because it's important to understand. It's a hallucination if you think that a four-foot seal is... 10 feet tall <laughs> wearing and his, looks like a person yeah, with wearing, a tiny space yeah. helmet. And a silver jumpsuit. And a silver jumpsuit. Which, by the way, you get, you know, that's the thing. You, you have to be really in shape to pull that off. One of the things that Marissa said to me when I told her about how fast these guys came out of the water, she said, I'm surprised anyone survived from surfacing from that depth. It doesn't matter how quickly you get into a chamber. The bubbles are in the body. And DCS, which is decompression sickness, gets worse over time. So it's important to get into a chamber as soon as possible. 
saying also she pointed out you mentioned about notebooks and charts or whatever about decompressing yeah. they, they have computers now yeah i don't know if you've heard of these they're yeah, yeah dive computers yeah <laughs> what computers no, yes yeah. i have they uh, wait no they wear these um, yeah, on your wrist yeah you it's wear a dive computer. tells and she was talking about how it tells right. her when to come up how long to pause in, in different places and all you all you folks out there that listening to us that have been diving for years please forgive us if we're no the point is that it can be hard drilling. to read gauges that's why uh dive watching gauges are, are easy to read because these effects can come up on you unexpectedly but if you plan accordingly and take precautions you're usually safe exactly what did she say what was her great quote about diving yeah she said she told us she said all said diving is really fun you guys should try it not everyone dies <laughs> <laughs> well that's very very comforting yeah it's a, okay I, I would i do want to try it actually although i'm a little f- freaked out about it I know, like a, a claustrophobia uh, thing and i don't know yeah you know. but not what about creatures seeing uh, strange creatures I don't. That doesn't freak me doesn't out. Doesn't bother much. you? Okay. No. All right. Um, yeah. I don't know why. I probably should. My cousin's husband is actually a deep sea diver instructor for the Navy, oh, and cool. uh, yeah, he specializes in explosive ordnance disposal. It's the the hurt locker underwater in a deep right. sea diving suit at great depths. But he goes through. They go through basic underwater demolition school slash S, which is for the seals. So they kind of go through some a lot of the same training to begin with. And then the kind of the seals branch off and do their more specialized training, but I was asking him what's that like, and he said, "Well, you know what? It's you, you know you don't see a whole lot of different things down there, but what you." He said, one of the main things is that it's so cold and you can only pee your suit so many times to keep yourself warm until it, until you run out and then you're just cold. Yeah. So that, nice. that was the biggest takeaway that he told me. Well, yeah. and so the, the bottom line is what we're saying here is that in terms of what the divers experienced, people online and in other places have speculated that they just saw the NERPA, the seals, right. or they saw a, a large sturgeon or something like that. We're saying that we do not believe that that is a viable reason for what they saw and oh by the way the sturgeon aren't fast they swim at like two yeah. miles an hour yeah. they don't dazzle you with their amazing <laughs> like speed. no they're not dolphins <laughs> yeah uh, but again i think part of their nature is that they're curious they'll come check out something if they see some activity going on like yeah. a lot of animals do but it does not fit with the rest of the content of this report no and now and, and here's the thing about this i had actually forgotten about Baikal. you know what brought me back to this yeah and what, when I was like, hey, we should do a show on this, it wasn't even about this diving incident. It was about the rings. That's right. It refreshed your memory. We've had this idea on file for, for quite a while just because, again, it's a very mystical place. We're not going to get to it all because there, there's really so many things going on about this spiritually for a lot of the local lore and legends, but also supernaturally. But just scientifically, there's some interesting things. And what did you see? It was a show, right? Well, there's a TV show on the Science Channel that I love. And if any of our listeners have the Science Channel and you like our podcast, you would like this TV show. It's called What on Earth? And yeah. it's a show that what it does is it looks at strange satellite images and they analyze what they're seeing. So they've seen this thing in a body of water off the coast of Florida. They see a, a picture uh, of the ground in China that looks like a stealth bomber where there shouldn't be one. Yeah. This kind of thing. And one of the episodes that I was watching, and by the way, the whole show, it looks like with all the satellites, it looks like the uh, title sequence from Enemy of the State. (laughs) There's a lot of cool graphics to spice it up. Yeah. I mean, it's like candy to me, but the the problem is it's also what I call WTC way too cursory. (laughs) 
It's just, you know, they give you about 10, 15 minutes on each thing. I really want to go down the rabbit hole on it, which is what we get to do on TV. They don't get to do that. No. It's one of the great things about podcasting. We get to do it till it's done. No one's telling us what to do, but we want to stay on track, of course, keep you entertained and informed. But they have, they usually cover like three different things. I think, at least the episode that I watched, you turned me on to the show. Yeah. I found it on iTunes. What's cool is that the imagery is spectacular. They do get some original interviews because with each of these anomalies, these geographic kind of weird things that they're finding with the satellite imagery, they'll go and ask some experts. And on, on this one, it's called Finding Sodom? Yes. It's a <laughs> unfortunate name. I don't particularly want to find Sodom. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but watch the... But no, uh, people yes, do. People not, do. In the way. Finding Sodom episode, towards the back end of the episode... Um, Poor choice of words. <laughs> but they, right. there's a segment about Lake Baikal, and what they're looking at are these images from the ISS that were taken in 2009. That's a space station. And it shows the lake, and at the southeastern, excuse me, southwestern end of the lake, in the ice, there's this big black ring. And I'm talking about really big. It's, it's 2.7 miles across. Yeah, nearly three miles Nearly across. three miles yeah. across. The ice is broken up. You can see the ring in the ice. And it looks pretty amazing. It looks yeah. like something that might have been mechanically produced. Again, they're 220 miles up in the International Space Station. And, and astronaut Mike Barrett photographs Lake Baikal. Do you, do you think these guys just sit around and look out the window? Do they have a certain amount of time they're supposed to look out the window for weird stuff? I, <laughs> not specifically weird stuff. There's six guys up there right now, by yeah, the way. And, yeah. and Scott Kelly's it, I think, 360-some days. Yeah, he's trying to go Him for and the, one uh, other one. Yeah, yeah, he's trying to go for the record. Yeah. I think it, you, you have observation times. They, they all have tasks that they have to do. There is some downtime. Yeah. Uh, and I think seeing strange things black and light satellite, anyone? <laughs> Strange things happening that they will get photographs of if they can. And so what he noticed is that that's a weird feature, took a photograph of it, and then went back and there were other scientists that tried to find some uh, from other past satellite imagery, and they, they did. Yes. Yeah, and we're, and we'll, and we're going to talk about that. But th- this is the thing about this. The ice around this ring is broken up all around it. Now, it's four feet thick. Four yeah. feet of ice broken in this ring. I feel like the What on Earth episode had said they had ruled out methane. Do you remember? Did you remember them saying No, that? no, I don't think they ruled it out. Okay. Uh, because they did talk about, uh, they are talking about sediment that's down in the, again, the, the four miles of right. lake sediment. Which is whereas, a viable methane source for sure. Yeah, well, no, but in a regular lake, you'll have tens of meters yeah. of sediment, maybe 100 feet yeah, and a very old lake. The Great Lakes, uh, I think that the, the uh, thinking is they're about fifteen thousand years old. Yeah, so not quite the amount of time. Even a lot of the lakes that we have now were formed around the last ice age and glacial activity, but this lake is special, as we've said. So the other thing I read was that you will not see these rings standing at the lake surface, nor even really standing on a, on a bit of a peak. That surrounds the lake. It's too big to see. It's, exactly. Yeah. It's too large for you to even wrap your mind around. So really, they really come into focus when you see them from space. And you can see the lake in its entirety. It's like the Nazca Lines, the, yeah. the Badlands Guardian. But imagine this. It's now giving fuel to some way out theories that maybe there's something down there creating these circles. What is it? Well, and and that's what I thought. And yeah. it, but Because this it's is moving. Where, that's yeah. the thing. It's moving. It's, it's They it's show happened. up in different places. Right. Yeah. The uh, ring itself is not moving, but where they appear 
is different places. And this was the biggest one. The other ones have been smaller. Yeah. And they've shown up in different spots. But this is where we're going to get a little sciencey on this one. And I, because I really wanted to look into this. So I wanted to look into the whole explanation about the methane and whether or not it would melt the ice. And at the bottom of the lake, it's pretty consistently about 37 degrees Fahrenheit year round, three degrees Celsius. Now, methane boils at minus 161 degrees Fahrenheit. So at the much warmer temperature of 37 degrees, it's in the form of a gas. More importantly, decomposition, which you and I have talked about this some in the past week or two, is exothermic. It gives off heat. And compost, because you had told me that you were aware of compost catching on fire. Yeah, that happens occasionally. Trash fires that kind of... uh, Start uh, themselves. Yeah, exactly. Because... I think this will happen. If any of you who are home gardeners or professional gardeners uh, or farmers will know, if you go up to your compost bin that's really humming, you got the water, the dirt, the uh, the biological material, the left, the scraps of leftovers, and you get it going, it'll produce heat. It'll be warm to your right. touch. Composting can actually increase the temperature in a composter yeah. 40 to 50 degrees Celsius. Oh, yeah. Signi- so. Well, th- that's pretty hot. Yeah. 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 But I don't know, I don't know if it bur- give you blisters, but it's definitely, you, you'll notice it. So that's kind of the thinking, though, that might be going on down below with the, with the methane rising up from the sediment. And with it, a lot of hot water. You're exactly right. So what's, what's happening is down at the bottom of the lake, these microbial organisms are generating heat. The heat rises up to the surface with the methane. It begins to swirl thanks to the Coriolis force, which is the, the Earth's rotation, which creates whirlpools, kind of like when you... Um, flush when the toilet. Flush the toilet, <laughs> goes, yeah. <laughs> here, here in the Northern Hemisphere, it goes around counterclockwise. I don't, but I think that's an urban legend that is it's it? different. Yeah. It's the same all over the place. Well, let's ask our Australian listeners. Yeah. You have to tell us which way your toilet bowl swirls. <laughs> yeah. So we actually found an article saying, and this is one of my pet peeves, the, the headline of the article said that the mysterious rings have been, the mystery of the rings has been resolved <laughs> right there in the headline. It's resolved. Right. Yeah. And then you read the article and what it says is, this is likely what it is. It's not resolved in that case. No, and it's just like, it's like that thing when we talked about Oak Island and we talk about Amelia Earhart and we talk about all these other mystery mysteries. Mystery solved. It's solved. Yeah. And no one has ever gotten it solved, but they love to say that it's solved. And with all due respect to the one article, which was on LiveScience.com, was written by a science and tech writer, uh, I think out of the Bay Area, named Jeremy Sue, HSU. Yeah. His article title, the scientists weren't saying this, but his article title was Mystery of the Rings Solved. I wanted to look into that further because I can't stand an article that says it's solved when <laughs> right. it really just says the word likely about what they think. But what I will say is that it presents a cogent argument and one that's kind of believable. But following your point, whenever you see an article like that, I think they explain a lot of it or a good section of it or tangible elements to the story, but not all of it. That's I think that's what we're saying is like, well, what about this part? And they well, haven't talked about that. I really wanted to drill down on it. So I went a lot further. I went further than I expected to. And again, as I said, we're, we're going to get sciencey here. But in my research, I found another lake. In Alberta, Canada, there is a lake called Abraham Lake. It's small by comparison, 53 square kilometers. And good pronunciation on that. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. That was easy, right? Right. It's in the foothills of the Canadian Rockies. In, in my effort to find something that points to hard evidence of methane rising up from the ice, we came across this article on a website called Scribble, S-C-R-I-B-O-L dot com about Abraham Lake. It has super amazing pictures of methane gas frozen under the ice 
reaching up towards the surface, and the ice is kind of clear. These photos are all over the internet. If you look up Abraham Lake and ice, it, it's photographers apparently are traveling there now to take pictures of it. And we have a link to the article in the show notes, which you can generally assume about anything we mention. So I'm going to stop saying that. Episode 32, we stopped telling people the links are in the show notes. <clears throat> okay. Anyway, in this article and the accompanying photos, which are by photographer Chip Phillips, you can see these bubbles coming up to the ice and they're frozen. And we know this is methane because to prove it, some ecologists from the University of Alaska, including Professor Katie Walter Anthony, created, they punched holes in the ice of a lake in Alaska with similar bubbles coming up. And yeah, they do look kind of like rings. And then they lit it. As soon as they punched the hole, they would put a flame to it and it would make this explosive reaction. We have a video, which you can see. And... Yeah, it's tr- pretty mind blowing. Follow that link. Just don't search lighting methane. Yeah, don't, yeah definitely do not. <laughs> on but the it's, internet, it's a very similar reaction. Yeah. Having seen both, very close, right? pretty much the same thing. Yeah, yeah, pretty much the same thing. So, this for me, this article and this methane answers what is happening with these rings. The rings are not exactly the same on these other lakes, but no lake compares to Baikal. The ecosystem it represents dwarfs the ones from the experiments, but. And, and as we said earlier, the rings in Baikal have been spotted in prior decades. They were actually seen in 1985 and 1994. And then the the one from the ISS was from 2009. And they happened, that was the biggest one. They happened in other parts on the lake, but they're, they've not been as big as that one that was almost three miles. Now, w- mankind, myself included, especially when you see it teased in, in what on earth, you have a tendency to fill in the blanks with the, the magical unexplained thing. And we want to do that. That's why we do this podcast. We look for stuff like that. But sometimes when we drill down on things, we find a scientific explanation. And we're going to share that with you. We're not always going to be able to say to you, and we do stories where we can't find a solution. Other times we find stories and we think, you know what, we think this is what happened. And sometimes you find a story and science is what happened. And I'm not saying this for the whole part of this story, because we're going to come back to the divers. But I am saying this about the rings. I think the rings are definitely being produced by methane. So Jeremy Sue's article about yeah. the mystery being so- resolved, he's, I think he's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, no. It, it, like, that's what we were saying. Jeremy's article makes a lot of sense yeah. when you think about it. And again, to recap here, methane rising up in giant bubbles, maybe forming into one, it's spinning due to the Coriolis effect, gets to the bottom of the ice. It's it's hot. It's, it's very hot uh, gas and now hot water. And this spinning creates a circle. Right. And, and it reminded me, you know what, the, what it looks like? And, and this happens, uh, you ever heard of fairy rings in the grass? Which yeah, I have, I, but I, I didn't, don't know, you know why. I didn't look them up, but, it's, but I think it's fungus. But it forms a, a fairly perfect-looking circle in your yard. Yeah. And of course, I imagine, you know, back in the day, people thought like, well, that's uh, fairies dancing in a ring. And so in nature, these things do happen. Rings do happen. Circles happen. And also, the picture that we see... There's a lot of other ice broken up yes. uh, around it. So it looks to me more like a natural biological and geological process. And there's another thing going on with this. Methane is a greenhouse gas. It's actually one of the most potent ones out there. It's 25 times the strength of carbon dioxide in terms of affecting global climate. And it's trapped in permafrost beneath several million Arctic lakes all over the world. As permafrost melts, up to 10 times the methane that is currently in the atmosphere 
is going to be released. And that's all from uh, prof- from the professor's YouTube video, which if you take a look at it, who was the one lighting the methane on fire. <laughs> yeah. And, but so, you know, I wonder a little bit if these rings, that they've been coming around for a long time, and it's a short time geologically, really, 1985, not that long ago in terms of... It, well, I, I wonder if they're a warning sign of... Yeah of changing global temperatures and well, well certainly i think they can be a, they can be a cause that could be part of the cause yeah but i think also at this point we don't know a whole lot about the history how long has this been going on is, is this been again this lake is 25 million years old however yeah definitely there are signs in nature that things may be off kilter or or changing. So, well, you know, yeah. I, San Francisco-based science writer Cheryl Katz wrote the following about Baikal for the website e360.yale.edu. And I'm quoting, Baikal's surface waters are warming at an accelerating pace, rising at least 2 degrees Celsius, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, over the past quarter century, twice as fast as global air temperatures, new research shows. The ice season, which typically covered the lake from January through May, has been shortened by nearly three weeks just since the mid-1800s. And the ice has thinned nearly five inches since 1949. By the end of the century, scientists say that Baikal could be ice-free a month or more longer than it is today. So anyway, but all right. So that's the rings. I don't think it's UFOs. I don't think it's aliens. I want it to be. I want it to be the silver. Well, how swimmers. do you, you, you? How do you know though? It's, well, th- these are two separate events, though. We're going to get to some other interesting sightings yes. in a moment. But I believe these could be totally separate things. They could be. I, yeah. I and I'm I'm 100 percent with you. And also, if anybody goes and is looking into this stuff, you are going to find that there was an art installation done in 2010. It was about nine miles across by an artist named Jim Denovan, who lived in a yurt on the ice there <laughs> yeah. for uh, I don't know half a month or something, and made a big artistic display of rings all over the lake. They are unrelated to the ones we're talking about, and you'll see the difference when you look at the pictures. A quick note for our listeners. We frequently get asked on Twitter and Facebook and other places about other shows that might be good to listen to. We wanted to let everybody know that we've recently joined a collective of podcasts called Dark Myths. Dark Myths shows are about world history and mysteries, and there are even historical fiction podcasts there, as well as dramas that are aligned with our taste. You can get a look at all of the shows in the group by going to darkmyths.org. The site is still under construction, but it works well enough to point you in the right direction. You can sample the shows there, and if you find one you like, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to it. While some of the shows have been around a while, some of these guys are just starting out, and they're producing really amazing stuff that people haven't discovered yet. Yes, and we'll be back to tell you about more of them in the coming shows, but we wanted to point you in the direction of three of them that we've been listening to and enjoying. The Nighttime Podcast, The Eastern Border, and Our Fake History. Jordan Bonaparte procures interviews with some amazing folks on the Nighttime Podcast, including the mother of Emma Filipoff in episode number two of his show, a young woman who vanished in 2012 in what is now an infamous disappearance out of Victoria, British Columbia. More recently, in episode 13 of his show, Jordan got an interview with David Blankenship, who along with his dad, Dan Blankenship, has been searching for answers on Oak Island since the 1960s and is currently partnered with the Laginas. He is a regular on the curse of Oak Island. Our fake history is excellent, too. Sebastian Major takes a look at some of the tall tales interwoven throughout history and deconstructs the realities and the exaggerations of the stories in a highly entertaining way. I recommend episode eight of his show, 
who were the hash smoking assassins. If you <laughs> if you guys think we do a lot of research, I'd swear Sebastian has a time machine and is personally taking notes on the past from ringside seats. Lastly, we want to mention a show called The Eastern Border Podcast. If you're like us and you're fascinated with cultures that you might not know a whole lot about, you'll like Kristaps Andresen's show. This podcast is based in Riga, Latvia. He was teaching me how to say it. It covers historical and political stories about Eastern Europe and Russia from the perspective of being a local. We recently did an interview with him, which you can hear in his 10th episode entitled Bonus Episode Number One. We also recommend episode number six of his show called The Olympic Burger. There's something for everyone at Dark Myths, so if you like our program, we highly recommend you visit darkmyths.org, where you can see an overview of everyone in the group, and maybe you'll find a new show to help you get through the week's Astonishing Legends is doing research. Let's move on to one of my least liked paranormal No, groups. it's one of your favorites. <laughs> Scott loves orbs. Orbs. Yeah. Well, they're not all the same thing. Look, that's just no. a, that's a very general term. Otherwise known as lin- lens flare. <laughs> yeah, well, these in, all, in again, terms of ghost pictures. Yes. Well, again, that's a very separate thing. Let's not do the debunky thing where you no. lump one phenomenon in with everything. No, and I do. Yeah. I have seen a lot of video of orbs, and these yeah. are different kinds of orbs, but the, the ghost video, which they seem to be moving yeah. very rapidly through the air in these images and. We're not talking about those orbs, right? No, no, we're talking orbs about orbs and still yeah. photos. I think generally are lens flare. Yeah, no, but, no. This is uh, quite a different magnitude, order of size here, because we're talking about something even bigger, though, than what you showed me here. Great balls w- of fire. Yeah, will o' the wisp. Will o' the wisp. Yeah. Yes, that's or it. as you like to say, hinky punk. Hinky punk. Okay, which is a that's a local colloquialism. I yeah, think, yeah. Uh, Southwestern England, they refer to it as a hinky ah, punk. very nice. I'm sure our listeners will let us know if we're accurate. It's also yeah. a Harry Potter character, is it? Yeah, one-legged character that appears to be made of smoke and lures travelers into bogs where they, of course, die. Well, that's uh, we've certainly had some listeners write in. Uh, I can't remember the names right now, but uh, there's been a lot of talk of fairies. Well, a lot of people have been listening to Doctor Goldstein's episode. Are we ever alone? That's right. And surmising that had we thought about whether or not it was fairies, and uh, and actually we have, and we talked about that, but we haven't ever talked about it on the air. You and I have talked about it probably. No, that is a, that is that one day you know, again. That's in the story folder. That is a big topic because it, it encompasses so many variations of the legend, uh, but also uh, cultures. You know, yes. uh, the the Native American Pukwudgie. Have you heard of that? Which is it, it's a very they're all mischievous. They all have it in Puck for wedgie. you. Yeah. Is that like a wedgie I'm not, a hockey, <laughs> hockey game? That's, I knew it was a mistake as soon as I said wedgie so, yeah. but, uh, to you. Anyway, yeah, but uh, no, we're going to get all uh, into that. But it does have roots in the same, uh, maybe, historiological... Is that a word? I'm not sure, so I'm not going to say it. <laughs> I'm not, Ooh, that's a my good lesson. one, historiological. History. <laughs> there is a similar word. I can't think of it now. It's late. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. There is a commonality, that's a word, yeah. with this phenomenon, though, with all these legends, because it's J- Jack O the Lantern. Yes. Uh, basically, it's some. It's a ball of luminescence. There's a whole Wikipedia page on Will-O-The-Wisp. Yeah, you yeah. guys well, should take a look at it. It's, yeah, it's yeah. pretty informative. No, and it actually goes into the, some of the scientific explanations, which is which is what we were getting at. It's very interesting. But th- this is the visual part of it. What, we've, f- we've buried the lead on this section, by the way. 
I just want to quickly say, people have been seeing balls of fire appearing above the water at Lake Baikal for years and years and years. These balls of fire, they refer to as orbs. Yeah. And that is what we're talking about when we say Will-o'-the-Wisp. We are talking about mysterious balls of fire above the lake, unrelated to the rings, theoretically, but we're going to talk about it a little more here in a second. Yeah, that's, that, that's an interesting connection, or non-connection. I don't know if they're connected, but it would be cool if they were. The, uh, the phenomenon of seeing these rings and whatever else is going on, uh, whether you want to call Ignis Fatus. Yes, Ignis yeah. Fatus. That's, yes, yeah. that, uh, swamp gas. Yeah, right. 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 And what were you saying? It's funny. Swamp gas has become kind of a joke. Like sort of the men in black joke about what you saw was the planet Venus and swamp gas and that sort of thing. And the funny thing about this is, is the guy who came up with the phrase swamp gas is kind of irritated at himself about it, right? Okay, well, all right. So now we're going to briefly touch on one of the fathers of modern ufology, Dr. Joseph Allen Hynek, or Dr. J. Allen Hynek. You've heard of a movie called Close Encounters of the Third Kind, haven't you? Yes, I have. Well, where do you think that phrase came from? The ranking, the, the, the type of encounter, what kind of encounter? Is it the second kind or the first kind or the third kind? Uh, you know, I remember being interested in it when that movie came out a billion years ago when I was younger. Yeah. Uh, but I don't remember now where it came from. Well, that's, well, he's the one who came up with that ranking system for the types of experiences and sightings. Because he started to realize as, as he got more into researching this that there should be some form of classification yeah because they're not all the same yeah anyway dr joseph allen hynek was born in 1910 passed away in 1986 he was an american astronomer professor and ufologist and it, that he's best remembered though for his ufo research but he was one of the first guys to work with the united states air force under three consecutive projects project sign project grudge and Project Blue Book, which that's the one that most people people know. Yes, famous. Yeah, the famous one. But he, anyway, here's the story. So, <laughs> you know, he's a scientist, so he's very rational. He's widely considered the father of the concept of scientific analysis, of reporting, and, and following up with the trace evidence of what UFOs have left behind. So he's bringing the scientific method to this field. So here's the big story. In late March 1966, and this was in Michigan, there was a couple of days of mass UFO sightings, if you can believe it. It was, it was getting nuts. The news media was reporting on it. It was getting uh, a lot of publicity. So then Dr. Hynek comes in and he studies the initial facts going on. Okay, and the, the long and the short of it, there's, a, there's about 100 witnesses. And he says, well, you know what, due to the, the, the location and uh, the time of year and all this, all the factors, the scientific factors that weigh in, it was probably swamp gas. He just kind of threw that out there. Again, not, maybe not being so savvy with, the, with how the media works, especially, the, the, well, nowadays as well. They grab a soundbite. It was an early soundbite. And they ran with it, and it stuck. Yeah, and it's still so, sticking. It's still sticking to this day. It's a joke. It's a cliche joke yeah, about exactly. UFO sightings. And so what the joke is, is it's a preposterous explanation for something that seems to be a lot more than just some swamp gas that usually the authorities come up with. And he wound up regretting this, right? He was, yeah, he, uh, later on he was like, you know what, I, uh, I shouldn't have said that I, before actually really kind of getting into it. That was just, people were asking him for an answer. He's, he's a scientist. He's got to come up with something. So he just said, well, sometimes it's uh, maybe they had mistaken it for swamp gas. And 
later, he said, maybe this is only a portion of the Michigan UFO sightings. But anyway, he later regretted having said that because it became a laughable explanation. And what you have nowadays is it's kind of gotten away from swamp gas. Really what it is now is, what is it? Airplane flares, uh, military flares, and weather balloons, and uh, things of that nature. So, uh, but flares is the one that you, you, and, and rocket launches that seem to uh, take erratic turns and go all over the place. Yeah. But anyway, so that's that's kind of the general moniker for a ridiculous explanation that does not satisfy anybody. So that's that comes to the swamp gas. And by the and I've mentioned this before in other episodes, my grandfather actually saw in North Carolina there's a, a story about the Mako light, which yeah. I mentioned in, in earlier episodes. I'm acknowledging that, but my grandfather actually saw that light and that's one of those classic folklore stories about a guy that worked on a train and supposedly lost his head because he was, you know, leaning out on the caboose and he was decapitated. Ah. And this light is him looking for his head. Oh, dear. And people would go in North Carolina to where these tracks were that sort of came through the woods. They were overgrown and not being used anymore. And they would see this light. Right. And he said he saw it. And I believe him. He was he was an honest man. I had read, I think, a few years ago that they took eventually they took the train tracks up. And when they did, you didn't see them anymore. But on the Wikipedia page, these kind of lights, this sort of train guy looking for his head or whatever, it's not just there's I guess there's more than one story about it besides the Mako light in North Carolina. They describe that as a Willow the Wisp situation or yeah. they, they classified it as that, which would fall into the swamp gas. <laughs> well well yeah, yeah, no, but there's, here's here's uh, again from the what I had gathered, it's a natural occurrence, but very rare. It's it but they have similar characteristics with all the sightings in that they say if you approach it it seems to recede. Yes. When you walk away from it, it seems to follow you. It's elusive and not very long-lasting. You can imagine when people approach it to come up to see what it is and it seems to be going away, it seems intelligent. Yes. And and one theory is that, well, you're pushing air towards it, so of course it's going away. When you walk away, you're sucking air back and it's, it's so it looks like it's following you. And there's descriptions of colors, dark blues, dark greens, very luminescent but again, it doesn't cover all the explanations for what people have seen at Lake Baikal. And we'll get to a couple of those descriptions a little bit here. Well, what some of the things that I had read were people were talking about methane spontaneously combusting. Right. And I really wanted to dig into that because I wanted to understand if truly, if this methane that we were talking about that possibly created the rings could also be coming out of the water and spontaneously catching on fire. So I dug down really deep on this, and again, here we are in the science realm again, but that's what happens sometimes. You look into this stuff, and you do find a rational, Earth-based solution. I didn't think that methane could spontaneously combust. The definition of spontaneous combustion means that a flame is not present. This is not about an igniter or an ignition. This is about other conditions causing it to catch on fire. Now... In 2008, a couple of Italian chemists actually successfully recreated, I'm going to say it, a swamp gas-like ignition that matched descriptions of what it supposedly looks like, and it created what they call cold flames, which are very similar in description to the orbs of fire that people were seeing above Lake Baikal. Locals for years have been reporting orbs that appear above the lake and seem to float in the air. And we're talking about fishermen, residents, and even local scientists reportedly and have witnessed them. 
Now, spontaneous combustion of certain things is very real, including humans. That's another episode. We oh yeah, <laughs> that's a big one. The one that that one is the least understood, actually. But there's there's other cases of what we call fire without flame. Coal in a mine can catch on fire spontaneously without without even a spark. If the there's a certain chemical process that goes on with the coal oxidizing, and then there's heat that gets trapped, and the heat continues to rise in temperature, and the coal catches on fire. This kind of fire is nearly impossible to put out. Oh, there's a uh, – sorry to interrupt here, but there's a great uh, This American Life story about a small town here in America that uh, half the town is burning underground. I was just going to mention oh, it. Oh, you did? It's oh, in, oh, yeah, it's in that. my notes yeah. here. The Centralia Mine Fire, ah. ignited 1962 in Pennsylvania, still burning today. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. yeah. And it's one of 200 that were burning in 14 states as of 2013. Here's one that surprised me. Wet hay. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. You knew this. I didn't know this. Well, no, I've I've heard of the term, and I and I, uh, you know, kind farmers, of vaguely, I guess, probably know. Yeah, this. vaguely know the uh, the effects of it. But go ahead and explain it. Well, I'll read this quote that I found in a in an article about it. Wet hay will stimulate. For, if, if hay is stored dry, it's fine, yeah. totally safe, no big deal. But if it gets hay, it will stimulate microbial growth. And if, as it, the, if it gets wet, if it yeah, did I say it gets if, hay? If it gets hay, yeah, so which it already is, eleven thirty at I night. Know. My bad. <laughs> if the hay gets wet, <laughs> it will stimulate microbial growth, and as the organisms grow, they produce heat while drying out the surrounding surfaces of the hay for energy. More drying surfaces produces more microbial growth. When the bale temperature reaches about 150 degrees, heat-resistant bacteria called exothermic bacteria start a process of chemical change that rapidly increases the temperatures to the point of spontaneous combustion. Wet hay will catch itself on fire. Yeah. And, yeah. it's, you know, so does linseed oil. Everyone knows about that, about your old rags or whatever. If you have oily rags. Oily rags yeah. will light up by themselves. So the question is, why not methane? Well... It's not just the methane. I found an essay online called Fire With No Spark. It was written by a guy named David Jones. And in this article, he explains that natural decomposition can produce a substance called diphosphane, or P2H4. Although methane requires a flame to ignite, diphosphane ignites spontaneously Ah. at room temperature. So this guy posits that microorganisms are breaking down phosphorus proteins in the, in, in the decomposition process. They would release this. So it's possible that diphosphane is present in the decomposition of whatever's at the bottom of Baikal, which is basically everything, 25 million years worth of stuff. Yeah. The question becomes, could diphosphane mixed with methane spontaneously combust when it reaches the surface of the lake and is exposed to the oxygen, the air? And the answer is yes. And I, I couldn't I couldn't verify who David Jones was. I did look into it. But one of our Davy Jones? Yeah, Davy Jones. Okay. That's yeah, that's a little All strange, right. isn't it? However, one of our team members on the Astonishing Research Corps has a brother who apparently is a brilliant chemist. So I asked her to put forward this hypothesis that at the bottom of Lake Baikal, there's a decomposition process going on that is creating diphosphane, and that's mixing with methane. And when this comes up to the top of the lake, it spontaneously combusts. And these are the balls of fire that people might be seeing. According to him, that is entirely possible. He could see it as a completely natural process, and it could be happening that way. And he explained that the temperature of the air is irrelevant. The only thing needed for the ignition is oxygen. Keeping in mind that the bottom of the lake, where it stays, as we said earlier, about 37 degrees, 
is likely oxygen-free or anaerobic. Even though there's oxygen in the water, it's not enough to ignite something like this. So anyway, could that be happening? There's folklore all over the world about will-o'-the-wisp or swamp gas, people seeing these lights and these lights above the lake. And this is a hard thing to recreate. Doesn't mean that it's not real. It's kind of like ball lightning, which they actually finally caught on video or film. Oh, did they? We mentioned this before a, a couple of years ago. So they've proven that it existed. I mean, if it's super rare and it's maybe it's hard for us to recreate in a lab, but it is entirely plausible that that lake and all that ancient stuff at the bottom of it is naturally creating balls of fire. Right. But much more common than I think the other uh, instances of it that we hear about, because there's quite a lot of reports, really. That's true. That's true. There's a lot. It's actually very common on this lake. That and a bunch of other weird phenomenon. All right. So recapping, we've touched on the parts of of these stories about Baikal that we think science can explain. I think that science can explain the rings and the ice. I think science can possibly explain the fiery orbs that are appearing above the water. Although I got to say, if I saw one of those, even understanding that they are scientifically possible to produce, I would still be kind of freaked out. It's, it's, it's a weird idea. And I know that my grandfather was certainly freaked out by the Mako light. It's just some of that stuff is strange. And that light yeah. swung back and forth. It looked like a lantern. <laughs> yeah. No, you, uh, Mark Brugnoni, wasn't he chased? Uh, he also said there were some lights in the woods. He, Yeah, they didn't along, chase him, but he saw them. He saw them moving. Up and, on and, the but, edges and of, what he said was it wasn't even, like something floating. It looked like it was stepping. Yes, we're making steps. reference to um, an episode called The Laughing Indian. If you yeah. haven't heard it, it's one of the scarier episodes I think we've done. I think a lot of folks, though, have, have plowed through a lot of our episodes, so it might be familiar to you. Yeah. But, uh, no, the point is, oh, the one thing I wanted to uh, kind of point out here is that, yes, it's, that's an explanation. You see uh, swamp gas, ball lightning, this and that. It's not to the scale and the size of what a lot of people have reported seeing over the lake, which I think is massive. I mean, yes, this is a, the biggest lake in the world. I got it. 4.35 miles of sediment. Got that. Belgium. The lot, size of Belgium. Yeah, lots. Right, exactly. The size of the lake. On the surface. Lots of material, fuel going on here. But what you what those scientists found though trying to recreate it is that there was a lot of variables and to to try and recreate this and a lot of things made a little difference they couldn't get the they couldn't get the color right yeah the colors were different not what people explained that they saw so here a lot of the reports that we've read are massive balls of light yes. giant yes. i mean like you know house size in some instances and I think what a lot of the natural stuff is that I guess what I'm getting at is that the natural phenomenon that happens, the the actual atmospheric anomalies that happen, are only supported on a much smaller scale. Right. A lot of it, and and who knows? I mean, that's that again. This is a point I want to make is that uh, a lot of this is probably a combination of things. You're not all seeing the same thing, and also it can't all be explained by the same thing. You right. know what I'm saying? It's like yes, some people might be seeing actual ball lightning. Right. In some cases. Yeah, I agree. And so what we're going to do now is, as we get around to wrapping this show up, we're going to come back and talk about the things that, try as we might, we couldn't really put a science answer on. Because everything (laughs) that's happening at Baikal and the stories that abound about the area and Russia in general and in this particular region, Siberia, some of them defy scientific, rational scientific explanation. And and some of them probably don't. People are going to have varying opinions about the things we're pointing out here, as we've found out from our 
uh, iTunes reviews. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, look, I, I want to make a point about that as well. We're very careful not to say we know what's going on. Look, we're going to tell you what makes sense to us, but we don't know. We weren't there. Yeah. We're not saying this is the be-all, end-all. This is the theory that ends all theories, mystery solved. Right. We're about to tell you about some really crazy sightings that a lot of the locals have had. There's two things I think people should keep in mind. One is that uh, this is a UFO hotspot for Russia. Yeah. And also, I think Russians in general are a little more open to this kind of thing. We'd found that out, like with remote viewing, that they will check out some ESP stuff. And generally what happens is the Americans hear that they're checking it out. Well, now we got to check it out, too. Yeah. But they're kind of following up from the Russians who are uh, bold enough to go venture in and actually put some scientific weight behind this and, and try to figure out what's going on. This place is a hot spot of activity, both in the air and under the water. And not just Lake Baikal, but like you said, Usakul or the other, uh, the, the many of the other lakes, the big lakes around there. And that figures in water. Yes, it does. In fact, I want to read this excerpt from an article that was actually hard to find attribution for because it's all over the internet with no byline. But I just want to read this quote. According to Vladimir Azasa, former Navy officer and a famous Russian UFO researcher, quote, 50% of UFO encounters are connected with oceans, 15 more with lakes. So UFOs tend to stick to the water, end quote, he said. On one occasion, a nuclear submarine, which was on a combat mission in the Pacific Ocean, detected six unknown objects. After the crew failed to leave behind their pursuers by maneuvering, the captain ordered to surface. The objects followed suit, took to the air, and flew away. According to Navy intelligence veteran Captain First Rank Igor Barclay, ocean UFOs often show up wherever our NATO's fleets concentrate, near Bahamas, Bermudas, Puerto Rico. They are most often seen in the deepest part of the Atlantic Ocean and the southern part of the Bermuda Triangle and also in the Caribbean Sea. Another place where people often report UFO encounters is Russia's Lake Baikal the deepest freshwater body in the world. Fishermen tell of powerful lights coming from the deep and objects flying up from the water. Well, here's another thing I wanted to point out. There's a tremendous amount, it seems, of Bermuda Triangle-like activity over certain parts of the lake in certain areas. So there's one place, Cape Wrighty, I guess? Yes. A lot of weird phenomenon. And that's uh, where the orbs are seen the most as well. Is it? Yes, it is. That's in Okay, so the, here yeah. we go. We're making connections here. Yeah. A lot of navigational problems like they have with the Bermuda Triangle. Instruments getting wacky, motors cutting out, things like that happening. I'm going to read an account here from a translated Russian website. So the, it's a little clunky, but it talks about a incident with a helicopter, an MI-2, in the year 2000, I'm not sure if that designation is right. Again, this is uh, it's not all lining up here translation-wise. But according to eyewitnesses, the helicopter flew up to the Cape and suddenly crashed into an invisible wall, it seemed like, by the observers on the ground. Something just stopped it in midair. This thing fell into the water. And so that's why pilots to this day don't like to fly over the what they call uh, the line that's crossing the coast, the line of Ojon. 
Ohon, I think I'm getting that right. It's kind of, I think, centrally located in, around the lake, but... That's where the island is. Is it related to the yeah, island? Yeah, I believe it yeah, is. because the island's sort of in the middle. Well, no, and then there was a, uh, a another crash, apparently, in 1907. These guys get tossed around by these strange winds that were buffeting them that come out of nowhere. That's another thing about big bodies of water, though, as, as we know from the Great Lakes, that you get very severe weather very quickly. There's and also near mountain ranges and cliffs and that Of course, yeah. of course. But anyway, these reports, though, are citing strange anomalous activity, not just winds and bad weather and, uh, and white caps and things like that, but navigational problems. So they know to stay away from these certain areas. They, don't, they won't fly there. Yeah. You know what else I remember from our research was yeah. about the submarines. Right? Ah, that's another good one, yeah. Reading from an article... From the Siberian Times, 1977, when Leonid Brezhnev ruled the Kremlin, two researchers named V. Alexandrov and G. Soliverstov were in a submersible device at a depth of 1,200 meters in Lake Baikal. The researchers turned off their spotlights to explore the depth of penetration of sunlight into the water. Suddenly, the scientists were bathed in light from an unusual glow. Alexandrov recalled, it was so like if our devices was lit from above and the side by two strong spotlights. Only a minute later, unknown floodlights went out and we found ourselves in total darkness. So, yeah. So now we got the silver. We're talking about the, the silver swimmers. We're talking about lights coming out of the darkness. There are fishermen have described strong glowing lights under their boats, under the water, swimming around beneath them. Right. Well, and and this is the other thing that's kind of important to a lot of people hearing these stories is that these are credible witnesses. We're talking about military pilots. We're talking about uh, naval officers up up till admiral. So high-ranking people that are very credible, as well as regular people that live around the lake and they just kind of witness this stuff all the time. And it and it also extends southward into the areas surrounding lake on land people have seen lots of ufo sightings around there that's one interesting thing that you mentioned earlier statistically that's what they always say the three most likely places for ufo sightings are one military installations or military operations two electrical lines or places where there's a lot of high voltage and high energy being dissipated and three bodies of water usually fresh I, i'd read bodies of fresh water but uh, it seems water in general and there's a whole area of ufology called thirsty ufos have you heard of that yeah but only because you brought it to my attention <laughs> well you've you've certainly heard the stories but there's a lot of uh, stories about ufos seemingly extracting up, water e- exactly yeah. yeah and and large volumes of it was that one i believe in australia on the farm yeah, there's a classic... And the, um, the farmhand rode over on his motorcycle to the water tower that the farm had and watched this thing lower some kind of invisible thing, tube or something, into the top of the water tower and suck yeah. a bunch of water out of the water tower. Yeah, that was George Blackwell. So this is September 30th, 1980, the White Acres Ranch near Rosedale, Victoria, Australia. I think around one in the morning, he hears this really loud whining, screeching sound, and he's the ranch hand there. He's the caretaker, at least overnight. He runs out there. The cows are going crazy, just baying and and mooing and and going nuts. And he looks up and he sees this kind of saucer disc shape sucking water out of one of the water tanks. It's got glowing lights. I think, if I remember correctly, blue and orange lights lit up. It's just, it's not a common sight. Yeah. This thing takes off for a bit. He chases it on his motorcycle for a ways, 
and it well, leaves I'm surprised some. Debris. I remembered all these details so accurately. Well, it's one of the it's one of the uh, yeah it's one of the classic sightings there for a ranch. But it, you know, and he he was okay. There was a swirled pattern in the grass. All the flowers were missing, but the the grass was patterned in a clockwise or counterclockwise motion. Maybe Coriolis effect. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, and he had headaches for days. His watch wouldn't work. All the classic symptoms. But there's another one seen by a lot of people. The Gosford UFO incident from 1994. A bunch of folks, upstanding, credible towns folks, as they say, policemen academics, business owners, they witnessed an unknown object taking up water from a lake. But it, this happens quite a bit. Uh, this one had emitting shafts of light coming down and the water bubbling and frothing beneath it. But no, people have seen transparent tubes, iridescent tubes, things coming down and sucking up water. Mo- I think mostly fresh water, but sometimes seawater. So that's one of the theories is that it has something to do with either their propulsion or they just need it like a regular ship does. Or they're putting out fire somewhere, you know. I mean? Right. But basically, <laughs> it's a it's a very common thing to see this type of craft sucking up water. Anyway, it's reported a lot, and certainly at Lake Baikal as well. Well, we can't go too much further without mentioning the giants. Oh yeah, we we mentioned earlier that when Grabowski interviewed the men from 1930 that found the three skeletons in the cave that were three meters tall, or nine or ten feet. That is not the only case of that kind of thing in Russia, according to author Paul Stonehill. In another case in the early 1900s, and this is an article that Mr. Stonehill wrote and is appearing on Pravda.ru, the earliest mention of gigantic beings dates back to the early 1900s when several boys in Georgia, at the time part of the Russian Empire, discovered a cave inside a mountain full of humanoid skeletons. Each skeleton was about three meters tall. Uh, Again, three meters. meters. To get to the cave, the boys had to dive into a lake. George Papashvili and his wife recall the incident, a book published in New York in 1925, St. Martin's Press, Anything Can Happen. So again, we're talking about these three meter tall skeletons in caves, two incidences of them being in caves, one the cave you couldn't get to without going swimming. And then we're talking about the three-meter swimmers in the silver suits under the lake with the frogmen who somehow ejected the divers that were down there trying to catch them with a net all the way out of the water to the point where they died with no scuba gear. We're talking about lights under the water, fiery orbs coming out of the water, which we've explained could be scientifically explained, might not be. We've talked about the rings and the ice, which again, I think it's reasonable to think is being caused by methane from all the sediment. But still, there are many people that think that USOs, as we mentioned earlier, underwater submerged objects, are not alien at all, that they are terrestrial, and that there are intelligent beings that live on the Earth under the water and have been here possibly even since before mankind. Oh, yeah. And that a lot of the sightings and the greys and the abductions and all these stories, they aren't coming from far away. They're coming from under the water. Now, another yeah. place that there is, there are numerous sightings repeatedly, Catalina Island off the coast of Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, it's a hot spot. And in a few years ago, some people were looking around at the underwater terrain using Google Earth. You know how you can see the ocean floor. And they spotted off the coast of Malibu, right on the shoreline, actually, just under the water, what looked like a gigantic cave with a perfectly flat horizontal top. 
and big columns with entrances that looked like maybe three, like almost like a garage with like three bays in it, except they went back and they were, it was several hundred feet across and tall, and they would go back under the shelf under the, off the coast of Malibu. Since then, a lot of people have written about that. It caught a lot of attention, especially in the circles that you and I tend to frequent when we're looking at things online. And people are now saying that it was an error in the way that the image was processed. And if you look at it now, there's actually much more accurate images and you can't see it anymore because oh. it was sort of an it was an anomaly related to how they mapped the ocean in that ah, particular place. The face on Mars yes. syndrome. Yeah. Or is it a cover up? <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's knows? see. People yeah. were speculating, oh, it's how they get the submarines into Groom Lake for testing. Uh-huh. There's tunnels that go all the way wow. inland, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, I don't know. I saw that. it. Yeah. I remember and I I'll see if I can dig up the coordinates because it's it's a pretty neat thing to see. Is it a giant cave? Are there UFOs? They're coming in and out of the water around Catalina. Lots of people have been seeing that for years and years and years. Yeah. Well, there's other hot spots in this this hemisphere here. The east side of Puerto Rico. Yes. Near Cuba. Yeah. Cuba. There are uh, anywhere oh, thank that... Thank you for that extra pronunciation Cuba. on Cuba. That's the one thing I can get. Yeah. yeah I'm pretty sure. <laughs> no, there's other hot spots that people have reported uh, seeing a lot of activity. And certainly west of the coast of California here, there's certainly a lot of sightings. So it has something to do with water and also over the land, but near water. So getting back to another interesting description when you're talking about beings, there's a good article here from the Siberian Times, which uh, we we pulled a lot of good uh, descriptions and people's uh, reports here. They've also based their reporting on an NTV Television documentary. NTV is one of the major news stations in Russia. This is N as in Nancy, by the way. Yes, exactly. Not not like I want my MTV. No, not MTV there. But they did a documentary with some people that saw a lot of different sightings around 1990, the village of Kudara Sumon, about 300 kilometers from Ulan-Ud in the Republic of Buryatia. These are villagers that had, uh, I guess it would be a close encounter of the second kind, actually seeing people here. So I'm going to just going to briefly read a couple of the descriptions here of a, a major sighting, a, a, a close encounter, if you will. So it says, Vasily Timofiev spoke of a flying saucer. Its diameter was around 30 meters. So that's kind of big. Yeah. It shone brightly, but I did not see a clear image of metal or something like this. Another resident, Margarita Saibikova, said... From this dish came down people in shiny, shimmering costumes, Olga explained. There were people, as far as I remember, three people in shining yellow suits. Seems there were people, yes. And Marina Zimareva, who also says she witnessed this extraordinary sight, said, It was some kind of circle, it could be said. It was like a disc. It turned on the edge, and, well, windows were visible. I personally decided for myself that they were people. They had some human image. They were the same, straight, slender. They had arms and legs, and their gait was the same as ours. A little lower down there, there were three in orange suits. They came down from the disc like a man. The steps were very visible. Then, as they recounted the strange event, the aliens, quote-unquote, saw the people watching them. They returned to their spaceship and flew away. So, again, shimmering metallic suits. That's a very common description, though. But a lot of these descriptions have the three meters, that the, they're very tall. I've heard of descriptions where the people are actually shorter. But we'll have this site up. But there's actually some good pictures of sightings of lights above the lake and, and nearby. 
So there's a few other great descriptions of sightings in the lake, under the water, things glowing, things chasing boats. Yep. And also, oh, speaking of close encounters, the news article mentions that there is some possible interest by none other than Steven Spielberg himself in doing a documentary about the lake. This article came out about a year ago, and there's been no word. So even the, the news article itself said, probably a hoax, <laughs> you know, but right. wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. So uh, I, I, who knows? But it seems to be, it'd be a nice return for him to get back into this, and um, he'd do it justice. Yeah. What about, what you were telling me when we were at dinner tonight planning this out uh, a little bit, you were talking about a lake that vanished? Yeah, there's actually cases around the world of bodies of water going missing, significantly large bodies of water. And this has happened in South America, like in Chile and Argentina. And the government, you know, they actually go and investigate these things and actually employ geologists and, and do a formal study of what's what's happened. One of the bigger cases was located in Tempranos Fjord, and it's about 2,000 kilometers southeast of Santiago de Chile and the Bernardo O'Higgins National Park. That was a, a major body of water going missing. On May 19, 2005, a Russian village had its lake disappear overnight. And again, NTV television came out and they showed footage of a great muddy hole drying in the morning sun in the village of Balotnikovo. And the villagers just kind of looking baffled because the day before... There was a whole lake there. Wow. So again, it's not like they have footage of these UFOs sucking the water up, but in various places where there's a lot of UFO activity, water sometimes does seem to go missing. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. It is crazy. But again, water seems to be an elemental factor in a lot of these sightings. And uh, if you kind of believe in any of this at all, water seems to be important to them. Well, I just, you know, in in conclusion, what I want to say about this story and about Baikal is that, you know, earlier I talked about the pollution at the lake and some of the problems it was going through. And my, my point about that lake is that it's it's singular. It's a nexus of sorts. It's a major spot on the earth. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's a geologic wonder. Yes. Yeah. And it's plausible to me that if there is anything weird going on, especially with USOs, that would be a good place for it to be happening. <laughs> yeah. Now, the evidence that we found, I don't know. It's a little bit... I, I wish we could have gone through this and said there's just absolutely no explanation for the rings and absolutely no explanation for the fiery balls. And this is a magical, mystical place. And I do think it's a magical, mystical place. I think that science does point to some of what's going on there. It's a large ecosystem of which there is no no system to compare it to. Yeah, You can't say, oh, yeah, well, this happens here, too, and there, too, because other lakes do not compare it to a lake of this size, magnitude, and age. However, the lights... The problems with the aircraft, all that kind of stuff that is going on there, what everyone is seeing, it, it's a little strange. And I think that it, it's hard to imagine that those divers were confused about what they saw to the point where, it, like I said, it was a seal or a sturgeon or whatever. Even if they saw something like a seal, that still doesn't explain how they were forced to the surface from 160 yeah. feet below the water. When they were ejected to the surface, they had to know when it was happening that it was going to kill them, most likely. Well, I think in that moment, you're, you're probably in shock. But, yeah. but it's, it's also the shock, and it's very much a, let me say, like a, a folklore staple 
a lot of this reminded me of some suggestions we've had from listeners suggesting we do stories. And we we will. We've been actually, this has been on the docket for a while. Like everything else we say, we always say that. But underwater civilizations or underground civilizations, Lemuria, there's great tales of whole races of people living underground. The Richard Shaver stories. And we've had some folks write in, and I think we've written them back so far, most of them anyway, that we are thinking about it and might combine it all into a to cover the whole broad story because it, it's really wide ranging. Mm-hmm. But it's not a new idea. We've had we also have a lot of H.P. Lovecraft fans out there. Cthulhu, I, well, that's one I cannot pronounce. Yeah, I even like studied it in the, uh, the looking at the pronunciation guide there, and I think even Lovecraft wanted to make it difficult himself. But the idea is that there is a massive, humongous, colossal, sentient being living in the depths of the waters, sleeping, waiting to come alive at the right point and wreak havoc on mankind, exacting his revenge. For some reason, I don't know. But basically, we're always doing something wrong and some other worldly force wants to kill us or eject us to the surface, you know, shooting up 50 feet in the air. I was going to read this uh, finally here, this one last thing, which is kind of crazy. It's one of the, the, for the final things I read that ties into, if you want to get real fringy here, I'm not getting fringy, but Paul Stonehill is in his reporting. That's the author we mentioned earlier. And we'll have this article that he wrote, Mysterious Giants Inhabit Eurasian Lakes, Part 2, where it gets real fun. And this is the thing. I it, These are fun. These are these are great stories. Yeah, and that's why we They're, like to tell them. That's exactly, why we do this we, show. It's why we like discussing them and not just, we're not just doing a, a dry science report here or a book report, hopefully. So Stonehill talks about Mikhail Demidenko, a well-known Russian writer, and he's a researcher as well. And he'd read Steinberg's account in 1992. I guess it's about 10 years after the original report came out that no one seems to be able to find. But that's not surprising. Yeah. The best piece of the article here, I'm going to read this little paragraph because it really gets to the fun, mysterious, creepy part of this whole thing. Oh, yeah, I love this. In 1954, Demidenko was accompanying high-ranking Beijing and Soviet military commanders as they inspected red Chinese troops in Xinjiang province in the Uyghur Autonomous Region and western Tibet, where the group spent a night in a Lamaist monastery. There, Demidenko met an old monk who was a Russian-speaking Mongol. Among many fascinating subjects, the monk told him of the caves in the Tibetan mountains where giants that are three meters tall remain in an anesthesia-induced sleep. One day, they can wake up. Later, Demidenko heard stories that the Red Chinese gutted one of such sacred caves, removed from there sleeping amphibian giants, quote-unquote, and publicly hanged them. As Demidenko's well-researched book, in parentheses here, he had great connections in Asia, East Germany, Russian armed forces, demonstrates... The occult-worshipping Nazis were quite aware of the giants and legends of the underground cities of Tibet. That is why Hitler sent his SS expeditions to Tibet, as he was certain that these giants-demigods would confirm his theories. But there is more information regarding the giants in his book, and a wealth of other historical information about Hitler's expeditions, archives, and mysterious events. So that gets about as fringy as... uh, as you can get, I, I would think, amphibian giants, but again, three meters tall, in caves. 
So are these all just elements of stories that and legends that keep getting retold? Is there anything to them? Well, who knows? I already said what I thought. How about you, Forrest? What do you think's going on there? Well, what I believe is happening at Lake Baikal is that there are a lot of anomalies, some of which can be explained by science and some of which may not be explained anytime in the near future. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight. Yes, it is. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in about two weeks with a new show. Our theme music was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps and our lead researcher, Tess Feifel. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. <laughs>